Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Olive Magazine podcast. I'm Janine, Olive's Who Director, and I'll be your host for this episode. This week, digital writer Alex is just back from a trip to Utrecht and has some great tips for eating, drinking and lounging. I'll be talking to writer and Italian food expert Amico Davis and Sarah and Adam give us the lowdown on fermenting. First up, here's Alex on why Utrecht should be on your travel hit list in 2017. So, Alex, I hear you have just come back from Utrecht. Yes. In the Netherlands. Yes. Um, I know nothing about it other than the fact (laughs) that it has a university. I think the biggest in the Netherlands, but that's all I know. So, yeah. What, what is it like? Okay, well, so um, recently I was talking with our travel editor, Rhiannon, and about European city breaks, and I said I wanted to go somewhere, and we have a great feature called Insta Travel, and I thought this would be a really good one because she mentioned there's lots of little cafes, and, yeah, again, it's like Amsterdam, but they don't like us to say it's the little sister of Amsterdam, the people of Utrecht. <laughs> that will say it anyway. However, it, it's got that vibe, as in it's trendy, it's very cool, it's right. got the largest university in the Netherlands. So um, lots of young people come to study there yeah. and then they end up staying. So it's a real hub of like young entrepreneurs and the amount of independent cafes and bars and boutique shops is like overwhelming really mm. um so it's a bit of an unsung hero then it, yeah it really is because i think one person out of all of my friends who are all very well traveled knew what it was but yes yeah, so, because it's actually one of the oldest cities in the netherlands and it used to be um a more prominent city than amsterdam so it's what people would think of when they were thinking about trade in the netherlands yeah. and it was created when the romans made a campsite in the dom square which is where the Dom Tower, uh, which is the famous tower in uh, Utrecht, now sits. Um, And it's got all of the pretty canals of, like in Amsterdam, and they were hubs for warehouses and they had storage at water level and then the warehouses above. And it's really nice because they're now just higgledy-piggledy buildings and they're just filled with all these local businesses. Um, It's so pretty to go in the spring um, and when all the trees are out, you can sit outside and all along the canal. Where, Where actually in the Netherlands is it? It's about, well, so we flew into Amsterdam Airport. Yes. And it's yeah. actually only 30 minutes on the train. Oh, so right. So it's so equidistant to the Amsterdam Centre. Right. So you could either go to Amsterdam or to Utrecht. Oh, right. Okay. Um, my favourite place by, by the canal there was called Talud 9. And it was a, a wine bar. And it has no wine menu, but the staff ask you for your preferences and then bring you three bottles to try, which is oh, brilliant. Wow. It's got a really buzzy vibe. So you can also, just say, I like this kind of grape. Yeah. I like this kind of exactly. texture. Chair. Yes. Oh, we brilliant. even said we'd like a, a white wine, so they brought um, like a, quite a refreshing white wine. So they brought a Riaxas Baixas uh, from the um, the Basque Country, and they brought an um, Alsace. Yes. Um, and then more like a, a more Sauvignon Blanc. So you can really choose which 
kind of profile you, you wow, want. Wow, it's like a restaurant without a menu. Yeah, yeah, cool. it's amazing. What about the food? Um, Any favourite cafes or anything? Um, well, there's, the, there are loads of cafes. Like, it's because of all these young entrepreneurs and there's a lot of students mm. and um, so it lends itself really well to, yeah. to the cafes. But what I liked about it, it hasn't got that like hipstery vibe that's too cool for school. Yeah. They really, everybody was really helpful and really welcoming. And I think because it's not quite had a tourist boom yet. Mm. So, well, at least with English people. So they nobody spoke English straight away to us, which is quite nice, actually. Mm. Um, and they were all just so willing to help. And when they found out we were there, you know, as tourists, they were telling us all about the local um, coffee. And so we went to a place called Te Coffee Bunche. Catchy. <laughs> Catchy, yes. Um, which actually means coffee bean in Dutch, which is a, it's a very hard language to grasp. Yes, so I've heard. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and they has they have two locations and they're very stylish zen spaces and you can you can curl up on these basket swing chairs which are really cool mm. and they use coffee from a Bocca coffee roastery in Amsterdam and also my other favourite place was Village Coffee and Music Bar on Voorstraat which was a really nice chilled place to hang out and serves the best coffee in Utrecht apparently mm. and I can vouch that it was very good. <laughs> um, Anything alcoholic? Of course, yes, yeah. Well, actually, they it was really surprising because I didn't know before I went that they have a, an undercurrent of microbreweries. So they have loads and loads of them. Um, and we tried um, a Pandora Dutch Pale Ale from, uh, Blonde from Maximus Brewery in Utrecht, which was like fruit, fruity and slightly bitter. And then also Neoboski's Sooty Otter, a great name again. Wow. <laughs> um, and that was a dark American black uh, Black ale style beer. Can you get these beers throughout Utrecht, or do you have to go somewhere specific to try them? Um, there's there's loads of places. There's a bar called um, Olive, Olivier, and that's in an old little castle. Oh, so, wow. But you don't realise it's it's a castle from the outskirts, but uh, from the outside. But actually, when you go in, you see all the interiors, and that's mm. near the train station. Okay. And then they've got loads of. Off the top of my head, I can't name them all, but I'll be writing something about Utrecht on, on olivemagazine.com. And they have um, lots of wharf, you know, in the cellars of the, the wharf side cellars of the, uh, the buildings and, uh, next to the canals. Um, and we actually had a really good selection in our hotel. It was the Mary Kay Hotel, which is a really cool, arty <laughs> hotel in a 17th century building. So that was great. What about... Um, what what would you eat if you had to eat one thing when you went to Utrecht? What should you try? Um, well, Dutch Dutch food. There's a few staples. Um, my favourite because I went to Amsterdam a few years ago, and one is bitterballen. I don't know if you've heard, have you heard of those. No, I don't know much about the Netherlands and no. its food. Um, so. They're these little like Dutch take on croquettas, really, um, and they're like, deep fried balls with a creamy veal, chopped veal filling. Mm. And sometimes they have beef as Bit well. Like arancini. Or... Yeah, yeah, that kind of you know the croquettas, arancini, mm. all of that. They're really good and very, okay. very Moorish. Um, what are they called again? 
Sorry. Bitter barlin. Bitter barlin. Um, and they have got hints of nutmeg as well, and they're always served with mustard. Okay. And we had those at a really nice place called Spring Harbour on um, Spring Reg Street. And that's uh, been open since 1885, and it was a gorgeous little old old school bar, and you mm. snuggle up in there, and you have your, your microbrewery ales and, <laughs> and your bitter barlin. And then another food which is quite surprising if you don't already know about it is Indonesian food. That's quite far away. Yes. So Holland is actually the best place to eat Indonesian food outside outside of of Indonesia. Really? Wow. Because in the 1940s, the Dutch colonised Indonesia and called it what well, it's called Dutch East Indies at the time. Right. Um, and then they've returned home, and now Indonesian culture, and particularly the cuisine, has really left its mark on um, on Holland in general. How are they? Well, it's just so unexpected, really. I know. It, we went to a restaurant. They've got one in Amsterdam and one in um, Utrecht, and it's called Blau. It's B-L-A-U-W. And they serve these rice tables, which are just such a spectacle. So they bring about... 20, 30 tiny little dishes um, and they're laid out with um, goat skewers and chicken satay and coconut with vegetables mm. and chicken curry. It's absolutely brilliant. So, and you have nasi goreng as well, which is really a famous Indonesian dish. So you just have little bits of everything, which yeah. was really, really, really good. Sounds like a feast. Yes, it was. A good one with friends. Yes, maybe. definitely. Yeah. Right. Um, okay. What about what? What did you actually do there apart from drink microbrewery beers and <laughs> lounge in um, swings? Well, as I say, it's it's such a nice place to go when we were quite unfortunate with the weather, but every other weekend seems to have been beautiful weather so far <laughs> this year. Um, and it's really nice place just to go and sit by the canal. And there's lots, quite a few museums actually. Um, and the Central Museum has um, an exhibition on at the moment, and it's the Rietveld Schroeder House, which for architects they will know very well. I am not really accustomed to the architecture world, but uh, I am really interested in it. And it's a UNESCO landmark um, outside of the centre, and it's really worth walking to. Okay. Um, because you can see, even if you aren't an architecture buff, you can see so many influences of even places like Ikea. I said Ikea, but I didn't want to, but she said, no, exa- exactly. And all of the, you know, the filament light bulbs and all of these coffee shops yeah. and exposed um, exposed lighting. And yeah. it's all really, you can see the influences. So that's definitely worth going to. And he's then the architect. He's called Gerrit Rietveld. Mm. And he created it for Mrs. Tuth Schroeder and her three children. So Aww. she was a widow. And, um, yeah, you can see all the use of primary colours and they've got a little kitchen and you can see how, how they designed the kitchen. So that's linking it back to the food. <laughs> yes, which is the most important part. Of course. Is this, all, yes. is this all walkable or, or do you hop on buses? Oh, no, you don't need to. You can get a bike. As in Amsterdam, there, yeah. are, there are billions of bikes everywhere. Um, and it's actually, you have to navigate this the city, uh, well, the city, town, quite well because we're not used to maybe in London. I know there's more more bicycles now, but um, we're not used to taking that into consideration because that's the main traffic. Yeah. Um, but you can very much, you can walk from one side to the other in 15 minutes. Oh, wow, so there's yeah. no need for a bike, really. Yeah, the only thing that is a bit further out is the Rietveld Schroeder house, but that's only about 25 minutes. So, wow. yeah. 
No. Sounds yeah, brilliant. I really, I honestly really recommend it because it's a bit, you know, it's a bit unknown. It's a bit different. And when I said I was going, lots of people like, oh, where's that? And I've, I put lots of pictures on our Instagram account and mm. people have been asking me where it is. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I really, really recommend it. I will book a ticket. Yes, yes. Thank you very much, Alex. No problem. Fermenting is one of this year's big trends in both food and drink. Here, Adam and Sarah talk kimchi, kombucha and kefir. Hi, so I'm Sarah, I'm Olive's drinks writer, and I'm joined by Adam, who is our lovely cookery writer. Hello. And today we are talking about fermenting, which sounds a bit of a weird thing to be talking about, but it's one of this year's kind of hottest trends, yeah. isn't it? We kind of noticed a bit of it. Last year, kimchi is becoming really widespread, and we just wanted to get kind of to the bottom of it and figure out what it's all about and why it's so popular and why it's so good for you. Yeah, okay, well, I think it has been cool for a while, but maybe not as mainstream as it is now. Like, if you like, like for, for me as a cookie writer, writing recipes, things like uh, sauerkraut and mm. kefir and kombucha, you can all buy on a cardo, get from Waitrose and specialist shops now. So it's, it's much easier to get hold of as a consumer. It used to be a bit of like a not a back alley kind of thing, but you had to know the right people, you had to know where to look to get it or make well, it yourself, I think, didn't you? I think the association would be like some sort of weirdo with loads of pots of <laughs> brewing stuff in his Lots of garage. Or, in his yeah, garage, yeah, yeah. That's sort of the association. But I just wanted to, like, there's so many more things that are fermented that we don't actually think about. We think about fermenting as being, uh, yeah, like, like kimchi or sauerkraut, mm -hmm. these sort of, like, the like breaking down of things like it's basically like control rotting is what some people call it but it's definitely not that um, very appetizing. but yeah things like chocolate yep. is fermented coffee is fermented alcohol is a type of fermentation yep. um, and really it's just a type of preservation so it's utilising the ingredient and making it last for longer yeah. so you're totally right it is a bit of a scary word to a lot of people isn't it and yeah it's, it's you say fermenting or fermented and people think, oh, I probably shouldn't eat that. But actually, once you kind of mind over matter, get over it, yeah. then kimchi is delicious and so are all the other yeah. kind of fermented. Completely. Well, I've got, I've got a little wiki um, description. So it's, yeah. it's the Go metabolic on. process that converts sugars to acids, gases or alcohol. Ooh. So Sounds when you... Yeah, I mean, it sounds really fancy, but at the end of the day, you, it's, again, it's just preservation. So it might be as simple as taking a fresh cucumber yeah. and putting it in vinegar and for, like just controlled fermenting that over um, the uh, winter, say, and mm -hmm. then you've got pickled cucumbers or dill pickles or any of those things to eat. Yeah. So that's, that's a form of fermentation. And it's kind of been made popular by people like René Redzepi at Noma and yeah. it's that kind of preserving the seasons to use throughout the year isn't it like yeah it's a yeah really definitely. good way of getting well i think it's, it's it's as old as we are as real as consuming yeah, yeah really yeah um people have been doing it things like sourdough breads people mm -hmm. think that you know if you speak to your grandparents they don't like don't even know what it is they think it's some new contraption for america but that's like that was the original type of bread before uh you know a commercial yeast was invented okay so yeah, like make you create a ferment and you ferment yeah. flour and water with bacteria and yeast, to then like the natural yeast that's in the air or on the flour, and uh, to make bread. So yeah, so again another form of fermentation, which is as old as time. It's really interesting because alcohol, all alcohol starts with fermentation. Yeah, yeah, of course. As well, it's taking a sugary substance, introducing some yeast and kind of letting the yeast do its 
yeah. do its thing. And obviously the byproduct is then the alcohol. It's actually, exactly. it's actually a byproduct of the yeast eating the sugar, creating carbon dioxide and alcohol and all those good, yeah. yummy things. Cast your mind back to GCSE science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Could, you, could you see the gears working in my head there? <laughs> yeah. um, um, but it's not just alcohol that that starts with fermenting. There's kombucha. Yes. Which well, is massive Would now. that not be slightly alcoholic in most cases? Because it is, it's kombucha, for those that don't know, is fermented tea, yeah, I think, originally. Yeah, fermented tea. You can get some alcoholic versions, but it all depends on the fermenting process. So if this is really techy and a bit geeky and very science Go on, we like that, we like that. If the yeast has oxygen... Yeah then it's producing aerobic, it's right. doing aerobic respiration, yeah. which means it doesn't produce alcohol. Yeah. If you cover it and keep it in a sealed container, it's yeah. got no oxygen, then it's producing anaerobic respiration, which produces the alcohol. So with kombucha, you don't completely seal, it's mm. not an airtight container, you yeah. put like a kind of breathable cloth yeah, over yeah. it, yeah. so it can ferment in a different way. So, onto what are the health benefits there's meant to be loads of health benefits. I mean, it's all kind of anecdotal. And yeah. we can't, like, disclaimer, we're not saying that kombucha is going to cure yeah. you of all ills. But it's meant to be really good for kind of your gut health. Yeah, I think the healthy gut with all fermented food is... Yeah. Because they are um, full of, what, well, good bacteria. Friendly bacteria. Friendly bacteria. To, to go a little bit um, sort of bought shop yeah. uh, drinking yogurt. Um <laughs> It's, yeah, full of uh, healthy bacteria. And the more good bacteria you have in your gut means that if bad bacteria is introduced, they can basically overwhelm yeah. and basically not make that come to anything and make you really ill yeah. um, in some cases. Um, yeah. It's also really great because it's, it's a soft drink, but it's not got loads of sugar in it. It's pretty good for you. It's pretty tasty. Mm-hmm. A lot of people say it tastes, I think it tastes a little bit like cider. Yeah. Like a still cider. You can get flavoured ones. There's a company called... Um, Jar Kombucha, which um, produce out of Hackney Wick, and they do a really amazing passion fruit one, wow. which I'm a little bit addicted to. Yeah, yeah. You can get that quite widely now. It's in mm-hmm. Whole Foods, it's mm-hmm. in like, all those kind of specialist health shops. Yeah, that's definitely one to look up to look out for. Um, I know with um, other fermented foods, uh, it makes things more digestible. So like with sourdough bread. Yeah. Uh, it makes the carbohydrates and whatever grain you're using it, the, the fermentation process actually breaks down some of that, uh, some of those carbohydrates, which it's just makes you a it... little helping hand, isn't it? Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, instead of like the whole, like, you know, white sliced bread, which is mm-hmm. fairly relatively indigestible, a lot yeah. of it, um, it, yeah, it makes a lot more sugars and nutrients available to you. To you. Um, it's all about making those kind of those healthy choices. And I know as readers of Olive, we're all interested in food. We don't want to eat loads of processed food. You want yeah. to try and like use the best ingredients you can. Mm-hmm. So adding fermented stuff, whether that is sauerkraut or sourdough bread or um, kimchi. Chocolate, or good chocolate. Good chocolate or, you know, a couple of bottles of kombucha a week. Yeah. Or, or in my case, a couple of bottles of wine a week, which is a yeah. fermented food. Also fermented. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe not quite as good for you. But it depends what you're measuring um, it by. Well, antioxidants yeah, and those sort of things. It's all good for you, isn't it? It's yeah. good for you. Yeah, yeah, and the reason why we're talking about this is because uh, we have a fermented section in our... Um, we have some fermented recipes in our March issue out now. Yeah, we've got a brilliant um, kefir water limeade, um, which is delicious, and also kimchi... Is it red cabbage kimchi? Yes, red cabbage, yeah. uh, like crouchy kimchi type yeah. thing. Yeah, so those are great kind of recipes to get you introduced 
to it and get you started with fermenting. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's a whole world to explore, I think. Yeah. Let's yeah. know how you get on. Yeah. Great. Cheers. Thanks. Bye. Food writer Miko Davis is an expert on Italian cooking. I caught up with her this week to talk about Marema, a hidden gem on the Tuscan coast. We're really lucky uh, this week on the podcast to have Amiko Davis. Welcome, Amiko. Thank you for having me. <laughs> um, we've got a gorgeous feature in our March issue that Amiko's written for us, and it's based on her book, which is out now, called Aquacotta. Um, and it's about um, a, a, a small part of Tuscany's coastline. Um, I think it's your uh, second book, isn't this, on yes. Italy? And um, Amiko's got quite an interesting story because she's not... Um, She's actually Australian, is that right? Yeah. Um, so how did you come to fall in I mean, we all fall in love with Italy in some way, but how did you come to fall in love with it so much that you've written two books about it? Um, well, the first thing that actually brought me to Italy was art, fine art, which I was studying um, as, uh, as my undergrad. And I came to Florence uh, my third year of university um, to study etching and I absolutely fell in wow. love with the city. And That's such a romantic yeah. sounding <laughs> degree to do. Well, I mean. Yeah, I actually came back again um, after I finished um, my my degree to study art restoration. Okay. And um, that was uh, in 2005, January 2005, when I came back the second wow. time. And, uh, and that time was was basically for good. I, I spent the first year that I was there studying art restoration yeah. and um, that was amazing as well. Um, and then at the end of that year I, I met um, my husband and he's the main reason why I stayed all the okay. following all years. Always a good reason. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. how did you jump from, I mean, actually I did a fine art degree so and I, and, I'm like, <laughs> and I work for a food magazine now, So, but how did you jump from um, art to cookery or um, um, Writing it sounds books. it sounds like two completely different worlds, and <laughs> yeah, in a way, it, in a way yeah. it is. Um, but I've I've come to realise that um, for me, uh, you know, working on an etching, let's say, or mm. working in a dark room, I was also um, doing darkroom photography, um, teaching darkroom photography when I first came to Florence. Um, I, I really, or baking, I, I really like the process, the process of, yeah. um, of doing those things. And you're creating something as yes, well. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, so what basically happened was after I finished my um, art restoration degree, that was a three-year degree, uh, I started working in a photography museum in Florence. Yeah. Um, a really wonderful job, really dream job actually, yes, yeah. in terms of art restoration. <laughs> um, but they, it, the, the pay was so, so terribly bad wow. that I had to move we we had to move in with my mother-in-law and then that um I just realized this was just not going to work oh, this dream wow. job oh, couldn't wow. afford to pay for the rent break yeah <laughs> so I ended up working um just getting another job yeah. in, um, in a reception uh just sitting behind a desk and uh that was so so mind-numbingly boring yeah. for me that um I needed something else to do yeah. so I, I started writing a food blog and that's where the food writing came yeah. in because I think um, the process of uh, writing, the process of cooking, cooking and then writing, yeah. which bo both things I've always had a passion for. I just never knew how to make a job out of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, that whole process of the, I don't know, having the food blog and yeah. writing, photographing and um, doing all the cooking, that's uh, where that passion yeah. then sort of steered towards doing doing that. And I see them all sort of as a very um, 
very different things, but coming from a similar yeah. desire to create something and um, and, and I know be you constantly creating. You you married an Italian man, but um, Italians are quite notorious for being exacting about their recipes and their food. So yeah. how did you feel as a kind of Australian interloper in the um, in the cuisine? Um, I think I'm, I'm kind of lucky because when um, when I first met my husband, he had never ever cooked anything on his own ever. Well, never cooked anything at all. Um, and because is that because his mum did all the yeah. cooking? <laughs> well, more than his mum, it was his his nonna and um, oh, his grandmother. Okay. Um, died just two months before I met him, and he had just moved out of home. Oh wow! <laughs> and so. Um, you had big boots to fill. <laughs> yeah, well, the thing is that he had been living with his grandmother and his parents, so everybody, multi-generational household, um, this whole entire time. Not only had he never needed to cook, but yeah. his grandmother, I think, was quite protective of her kitchen. Um, she wouldn't even let my mother-in-law do much cooking. So mm. as a result, my mother-in-law is not a fabulous cook. Um, <laughs> she was definitely, everybody in the family always talks about how the grandmother was the... Yeah, the, the absolute star yes. of the kitchen. So um, the first time I ever cooked something for um, for Marco, my husband, um, I, I literally had nothing in the fridge. I had, was living in this tiny shoebox of an apartment that only had one <laughs> burner on the stove, one hob yeah. um, to cook on and a tiny mini bar as a fridge. So I, be- I <laughs> oh, barely had anything in it. And um, really got to get we decided to have like an impromptu <laughs> yeah. dinner at home. And so all I had was some broccoli and some pasta and a bit of garlic, I think, and I um, I made uh, a pasta out of it yeah. and he took one bite and he said, I'm going to marry you. Oh, my God, that's so romantic. <laughs> so I, think, um, I think he was quite oh, impressed that I could... Yeah. Um, make something out of seemingly nothing yeah. and um, after that he got really interested in cooking as well and he um, he started um, asking his uh, his mum for recipes and he started watching video oh, recipes and he's a, so now, he's a fantastic him. cook and uh, I love that. he does most of the cooking at home now because I do most of the cooking during the week yeah uh, you know for work I'm usually testing recipes yeah, and that yeah, sort yeah. of thing um, and then and then when he comes home from work, he likes to cook to relax. So he yeah. takes over when he's home and does oh. all the cooking. And you got a good stuff. one. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us about um, aquacotta and and especially about uh, Marema, which is or Marema, which is the um, the region that you're talking about um, in in the feature and in your book. Um, what's what is it about that drew you to that kind of region? Um, well, first of all, we uh, my husband got a job in Marema. Um, he's a sommelier and um, we moved um, to Porto Ercole, which is um, a little fishing village uh, on a really beautiful promontory mm. in the southernmost part of Tuscany. Wow. And it was only a six-month, um, so se- seasonal seasonal jobs. Yeah. So six months we were there in 2015. And I had we had been there before on holiday. It's really beautiful and um, just surrounded by seaside and um, lagoons and really wonderful, rugged, very sort of wild um, countryside. Yeah. Lots of um, mountains and forests oh, yeah, and that mountains. sort of yeah. thing. Um, and uh, so it's it's exquisitely beautiful. But when we moved there and we were actually living there and I was sort of looking at the place through the eyes of someone living there, yeah. um, I fell even more in love with oh. it because, I mean, it's beautiful enough as a as a visitor, but yeah. even living there was was. Um, yeah, it was really special. And um, 
so I I basically contacted my publisher and I said you need to hear about this place because it is so beautiful but also the food is so interesting and it's so very very different from what people know what um, Tuscan food to be Um, even in terms of um, the difference between Florence for example where my in-laws are from and where we have been living uh, the difference between Florence and this corner of Maremma was was so uh, vast (laughs) that I would I would bring back pastries and biscuits to my mother-in-law from from our home and she'd be quite surprised at what yeah yeah, she'd be like what what are these biscuits I've never (laughs) seen or heard of these things ever before and and um you know we're still in Tuscany Mm. but it was just so very different so for people who think they've got an idea of what Tuscan food is what what is like marema what what would be the the kind of things you would get to to eat when you uh... so marema stretches um along a lot of the coast of Tuscany okay. and it also goes inland into that oh, wonderful okay. wild sort of countryside. Yeah. So what you have is this mixture of um, basically of sea and mountains. So um, you've got all of the fishing villages along yeah. the coast. There's really wonderful seafood from that area. Yeah. Um, a lot of seafood that comes in um, only to that that part of the Mediterranean. Okay, um, And then also you've got this... Um, this forest area where you can, um, well, traditionally, and, and even now a lot of people still do it, you can forage for wild mushrooms okay. and um, and there's lots of wild herbs, wild okay. um, chicory and oh, salad leaves wow. even, uh, wild asparagus mm. and... Um, and then you've also got all of the all of the wild animals. I was going to say, is it game? Is yes. game a big deal there yeah, as well? Is. Yeah, it is. So um, wild boar is probably one of the major symbols mm. of the Maremma. Um, they're just everywhere, and so, and so as a result, they're in a lot of the dishes. And um, uh, there's also deer um, in in Argentaria where we were living. There are deer on the beach. Yeah. So. so it really is um, people people who are living there are really living from the sea and the land. And and yeah. whatever they're cooking, it it's 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 local to the extreme, right? It's like basically what they yeah what what's landing up on their plates is what's coming into port or what's being like exactly. hunted in the forest exactly. or being foraged in the forest. Yeah. So it's like a real honest kind of eating. It it is, it is. And um it has for a long time been that sort of cushina povera that um you know, literally translates to poor in yeah. your pe- peasant cooking. It doesn't sound poor when no, you when you when very you say it. rich in terms yeah. of the variety yeah, of ingredients. Yeah, yeah. Um, you've got lots of also chestnuts from the forest as wow. well, so that chestnuts form um, a large part of the the base of um, mm. desserts and savory dishes. So you can find it in soup, or you'll find it in um, in turned into flour and made into uh, cakes. Oh yeah, that's lovely. Um, so yeah, it is a really, and then there's lots of really um, delicious fruit grown in that area. Okay. Um, so some of the best. Um, melons I've ever tasted um, come from Maremma. Really, melons? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah you melons. just wouldn't think melon when you no, think. Yeah, lots of fig trees yeah. and um, it does sound trees. really lush and rich and kind of. What would mm. be? Prob- what, could you pick a favourite dish that you've come across that you've discovered? writing your book like that comes oh specifically gosh, from the so sorry many. really put you on the spot there <laughs> um, or maybe two or three you could say yeah that, okay I'll give you a couple because there are there are so many yeah. so um I'm I'm a big lover of seafood yeah me and too. um so living in living in Puerto Rico was just a dream come yeah. true because you could you could get fresh seafood right off of the fishing so it's boat literally land, in landing and you're buying from the boat yeah yeah it's like <laughs> it's like it sounds like a dream yeah <laughs> so you've got these um 
um, wonderful, um, they're called mantis shrimp in English. Yeah. Um, they've got about 20 different names in Italian depending on which region you go to, but um, spernocchie or cicale di mare they're called. And um, they're rather spiky and difficult to get oh, into. Okay. Um, but you can boil them and then and then shell them and take out what's mm-hmm. sort of, there's not a lot of meat in it. Sounds like really like sweet kind of flesh inside. Yeah, they're very yeah. flavourful. So when you cook them whole with the shell, um, they just sort of multiply the flavour by a, a billion. Oh, <laughs> so wow. they're, they're just, they're they delicious yeah. to use whole in particular. Yeah. Um, but uh, so you cut out all of the meat, which isn't a lot. It's a little bit like sweet like lobster. Yeah, I was way. thinking that. I kind yeah. of. And then, um, and then you boil spaghetti in the pasta in the water. Sorry, in the water where uh, you had boiled the shrimp. So it transfers it the flavour to the flavor. pasta. Yeah. yeah, and then you just toss it all together with the, the meat and a bit of olive oil and some chili, and um, that's a really that classic sounds <laughs> right up my street. That yeah. area. And it's it's a good example of not wasting no. anything. So you're and really keeping it really simple because exactly. why would you need to mess with exactly. something that sounds that great? Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you need to get your kind of gloves on to stop breaking into yeah, them a little bit they've got like these little armored bodies with yeah. um with hidden sort of thorns underneath them so yeah they're and a bit tricky but... and what's your favorite wild boar thing because you said that oh, comes yes. in a lot of things. so um a wild boar um so there's you, there's many different dishes and you can eat them you can eat it as a stew usually mm. and um either on pasta or just on its own uh, with some bread or even with some polenta. Um, but there's a dish called um, cinghiale in dolce forte, mm-hmm. which is um, uh, basically like a, sometimes they translate that as a sweet and sour sauce. Um, and it's made with chocolate and cocoa and wow. candied orange uh, mixed into the stew. And it's got a, a bit of vinegar that kind of cuts through the richness yes, so it yes. sounds like really deep and rich and kind of yes, the thing that you very silky and absolutely just one of the most delicious things I've ever tasted oh, wow <laughs> it's got a lot of spices in it so it's a dish that um um goes back probably to um about mm. the renaissance where yeah. they use lots of spices and candied fruit mm. together with game um and then the, the chocolate just makes it just incredible so when you were writing how did you what was your process for kind of gathering the recipes were you looking at other books were you um talking to local cooks what was a mixture of everything it was a bit of a mixture but I found it was really difficult to find cookbooks from that area yeah um when we were like word of mouth yeah Yeah. exactly because when we arrived in Puerto Eco I went to the main um the main bookshop in town, I mean, it's a really, really tiny fishing village. So the bookshop was was um, really, really tiny sort of newsagent mm. that happened to have books. And I asked the shopkeeper if he had any books local of the local cuisine and he pulled down this book and gave it to me and it said Cucina Italiana. It's just like <laughs> a completely general okay. Italian cookbook. I've got that one. <laughs> yeah, so I realised that it was going to be really difficult to yeah. find um, any books about the kind of recipes that I wanted to write about. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I made friends with um, um, the local fishmonger whose yeah. family fishing boat comes oh, in every wow. evening into Porto Erco and she, um, she was very um, lovely about giving me some ideas. For so happy it. to share. Yeah. The knowledge. That's yeah. great. That's I mean, really nice to kind of 
I did still have to figure out yeah. a lot of how to make the actual recipe yeah. because sometimes the description was only um, really just a sentence. You know? <laughs> but but they are very simple preparations. Yeah. Um, so it was really more about having the idea of what yeah. kind of things. Um, also because in that area it's, you don't um, really find as many restaurants that are still making the traditional dishes okay. anymore. Um a lot of the restaurants are sort of catering to what people want to eat when they come to the seaside. Okay. So there's lots of fresh fish, but not necessarily <clears throat> um, the, the local way. dishes. Yeah. How many recipes are in the book? Altogether? There are 80 recipes. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's a beautiful book, Aquacotta, and I think it's published uh, this month by Hardy Grant. Um, I urge everyone to go out and buy it. It's absolutely beautiful. And I think you've started a stampede down to uh, <laughs> the Tuscan coast this, yeah. um, this summer, Amiko. Yeah. But um, thank you very much for coming to and talking to us and sharing all that Thank knowledge. I'm sure me. everyone's going to love it. Um, right, thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Olive Magazine podcast. If you like this episode, please don't forget to go review and rate us on iTunes. For more information on things in this episode, head to our website, olivemagazine.com. You can pick up a copy of our packed March issue now from News Agents. April's out next week. Or you can download the app version. Bye for now and we'll be back next week with even more food chat.